0: Well, we're back with the Connecting the Dots podcast. And now I did want to mention that we're talking about the Seven Years' War today, or for those uh, who may be in the U.S., including myself, it's better known as the uh, French and Indian War. Now, this war is underrated in the sense that it really truly shaped the modern world. And we often think of that war as being either World War I, in the Versailles Treaty, or even some might consider World War II to create the modern world. But I would argue that both World Wars and perhaps the ensuing Cold War, although that would be a more difficult argument, all started with the First Colonial War. Now this is really the First Colonial War because for the first time in history when the English and French Fought, it was not done so on the continent of Europe, but rather through naval capacity and between the New World colonies of Louisiana for the French and the 13 colonies for the English. Of course, we can't forget Canada also for the French. Now, this war did not just exist in the New World, this conflict also was fought on the mainland, but not by colonial nations. It was done more so uh, between the German colonies as kind of a reoccurring effect from the Reformation. You'll remember that in last week's podcast, we talked about King Henry VIII and the English Reformation and how that more directly related to creating the... Religious nature of the United States, the ethos that we all share. But when it comes to what happened in Europe, this part is is important for shaping the geopolitical world. I would argue for hundreds of years to come. Now, for those who don't know, the nation of Prussia is really an interesting creation. Uh, there was a country in northern Germany with the capital Berlin called Brandenburg, and this was a very old kingdom, but they were relatively powerful for their size, and I must stress that they were not a very large country or that wealthy. They were not on the scale of an Austria or a France, but Prussia and the Brandenburg nation, really came into prominence in the late 1600s, early 1700s. When the Teutonic Knights, or what was the Teutonic Knights, were vassals of the Polish nation, they eventually became uh, Protestant during the Reformation, and their capital was in a city uh, called Kongsburg, now uh, Kalingrad, and they merged with the also Protestant, Brandenburg, through a royal marriage. And they formed the nation of Prussia and eventually gained territory uh, in northern Germany and became really renowned for their uh, military achievements. Again, they had a history of great military generals, great soldiers in general, and really packed a punch way above their size, if that analogy makes sense. Now, the Holy Roman Empire, which we've only briefly mentioned on this podcast, but on the Crime of the Century podcast, we went into way more depth during the Reformation in that episode, which we covered more so of the European and Germanic Reformation of the 1500s. So if you haven't checked that out, I believe it was podcast 62, or it's labeled as the Reformation. That was a really uh, great, Podcast and should give you an idea of what the Holy Roman Empire is, as I am going to assume that you understand how the political mechanics work for the nature of this podcast. Now, the Holy Roman Empire by the 1750s, which is where and when this war takes place, had really devolved into chaos. It was originally a single state created by Charlemagne in the 800s. And by the 1700s, it had become kind of a loose confederation of of German states, which at its head had the Austrian and Habsburg rulers at its helm. This was used by the Habsburg family to gain more power for themselves and not defend the German nations, the small princes and electorates, as they were in those days. Not to defend them as the empire was set up to be, but more so to achieve dominance over Central Europe. And this is part of the reason why the Reformation spread so quickly. But by the 1700s, what had essentially replaced the Holy Roman Empire was this notion of dualism between the Germanies. You had the North Germans, who were more Protestant, who were pulling themselves closer to uh, Prussia because Prussia was Protestant like them, and also military-wise, they were much more powerful than many of the Northern German states, despite their lack of riches. And you had the Southern German states, really from France over to Austria who were Catholic still and stayed uh, allied with Austria. And this was done uh, mainly due to religious reasons but also in obedience to what was seen as the Austrian dominance and right to rule in Europe. Now, Austria for the longest time really since the 1700s and before, had been allied with England, or as it became now known in 1704, the United Kingdom, where the interests of both nations were to diminish the power of France. And for that reason, the two of them really trying to cultivate this relationship and And for a number of years now, really decided that the the two of them could outflank the French for better, or lack of a better term. But during the Seven Years' War and shortly before it, there's actually a flip because of England and their Anglican Church, and now the English are pretty entrenched in their Protestantism and the Austrians' Catholicism and wish to dominate Central Europe and win this dualism with the Prussians rather than simply outmaneuver the French, the two actually flipped where Austria allied with the French and the English allied with the Prussians because France had allied Prussia to try and outflank the Austrians. Now, Prussia allied with England partly because of religious reasons. The two were much closer in terms of theological belief, but also now the two of them wanted to compete against France, and by extension, Austria. Now, the English could care less about the Austrians switching insofar as their disagreements was more so with the French, an immediate threat, of course, right over the channel of the French. But the alliance with Prussia set up what would in the 1800s be a odd scenario where nearly all of the monarchs of Europe were cousins or somehow related to each other. Because it was during this time, too, that the English started to adopt more German heads of state. Now, they weren't from Prussia per se, but they were from northern German states that were in Prussian influence. Most famously, Queen Victoria, who came into power in the 1820s, was part of the von Hanover family. And Hanover, being a state in Germany, modern-day Germany, had allied itself with Prussia as well. Now, the French had joined forces with much of the native tribes that were kind of the border territory between the 13 colonies and the French Louisiana territory. And this really puts a hole in the colonizer claims. You see especially in public schools nowadays, and this is a problem in the United States, that we have this idea that all of these white Europeans came over, and they came over with the idea that they were going to kill all the native people because they're racists, and they were going to make the territory what became known as the United States theirs by killing all the natives, and that you know the natives were these noble, peaceful people, ...that just got slaughtered. That's not the case. In fact, both sides... ...had... ...trade deals. Both sides had... ...laws which... ...as far as the natives go... ...they didn't have the same... policies that... ...or advanced ideas of laws that the... ...Europeans had, but... ...the... ...natives could still trade and make alliances... And the French took advantage of that really to counter English dominance in the 13 colonies. So by the time the French and Indian War in the United States, or what would become the United States, came about, it wasn't so much that we were just fighting the French, we were also fighting their Indian allies. And this really pitted many of the tribes against Englishmen for years to come and really started this one-sided animosity. Now, the colonizer claims of today really come from a philosophy, and this is a side note more so, but Dennis Diderot, who wrote the first encyclopedia around this time, had the idea that the noble savage was truly innocent in all this. So this is not a new ideology. When somebody decides to Revisit American history and say that it was built on the slaughter of Indians or what-have-you. They are invoking this philosophy that The native tribes were peaceful the native tribes were Somehow superior When the reality is Real politic reared its ugly head in this time, as it always does, even though it wasn't described till the 1800s, in which the Indians, out of necessity, allied with the French and the French with the Indians, and these, what would be known by the philosophers as the nobles and the savages, Scalped innocent men, burned villages, did whatever they could to help the French. That both tribes would spear each other and use the modern weapons of their day to attempt to gain dominance over one another. They were what the Europeans had been for many years. And now with the Enlightenment, we're beginning to move away from. But the war in the colonies did not go so great for the French. Now it started off well because there was some incompetent general on the English side named George Washington who suffered a series of defeats in the border territories, mainly due because the Indians did not fight like the Europeans. They did not march themselves in a musket line up until they could see the whites of the enemy's eyes and have the two fire at each other. Rather, the Indians would wait in the woods, and when the army was marching along, they would attack with their hatchets and close-range weaponry and, in many cases, slaughter the army before it even got to its destination, but English naval dominance—that that we have come to expect—really was established here, and that the blockade of Louisiana and the subsequent destruction of much of the French naval force put such a blow to the French economy that it really started to starve out the French, even though their prowess on the American continent was clear that they were not being subsequently defeated in Louisiana or Canada. Though they were taking losses, it was not as though those territories were completely occupied. The English blockade, the power, and the sheer number of ships in the Royal Navy decimated any hope the French had of retaliating, and it stopped up their economy, which defeated their armies before the battle even began. And this really created for the French... A dissatisfaction with Louis the Fourteenth. Excuse me, Louis the Fifteenth. Uh, Louis the Fifteenth, who descended from obviously the Fourteenth, was not as politically savvy. Did not have the ability to keep the nobility close to him, and did not have the reverence among the people that his father did. He was seen as a little bit aloof, and his defeat and, for him, unfortunate signing of the peace treaty, which handed over much, if not all, of the French New World colonies, save for a few small islands in the Caribbean, the French people really started to... Feel the effects of an absolutist government. Now. When we say absolutist. The reason we don't say dictatorship or tyrannical. Is because the people in general have much more freedom. Under this sort of rulership. But there is no separation of powers. And. That all works fine and dandy when you're winning. But as the French came to find out. When you lose, and because of your debt, your taxes go way up, it's not so much fun. Because then, there's only one man to blame. And everyone knows who it is. So this debt that was accumulated from the war and subsequent taxation really hurt the French because they also had no colonies now with which they could tariff, much like the United Kingdom, which to pay for its war debts, which were also massive, this war was fought with a lot of expensive ships, fought with mercenaries, fought with an ever-increasing professional army. The cost... To support the English victory and to make sure that their colonies that they had acquired now from the French uh, remained under their rule, as in they needed to expand their professional and colonial armies, meant that they also had to find a way to pay for it. Now, unlike the French, the English now controlled much of the trade routes and land in the New World, or at least in North America, and so. Their solution was, well, we're not gonna just directly tax our people. The 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 French, though they don't know directly, you know, how dissatisfied the French people are with their monarchy, the English and King George the second and eventually third, they understood that the English people had a history of, of revolting when taxes got too high. So, rather than make themselves appear tyrannical, and, of course, they didn't have absolute power, they had the, monor- or the parliament under them, rather than deal with the different forces in the parliament to attempt to raise taxes on the local people, they just decided to tariff and tax the colonies. And their argument was, in some respects, that they aren't Englishmen. That these colonies are here to serve the English nation, and this war was their war, and therefore they'll pay the English government to support themselves. And the colonies... The 13 colonies, now expanded, didn't appreciate the English mantra. They argued that they were Englishmen and they were equal to that of any other English citizen and therefore taxes should be raised on everyone if need be or the English government should find a way, some other way, to pay for their war debt. And this, as we will explore more in depth next time on Connecting the Dots really led to a lot of the political writings of the early American Revolution and the years leading up to the war and started to produce an ethos among the American people that still remains today, especially with regards to taxation. This has been the Connecting the Dots podcast. My name is Kevin Prendiville, and I believe in everything I do in achieving individual liberty and personal control through both finance and general education. This is done through a number of ways, podcasts, media, learning tools, and face-to-face meetings. You can find more about that at kevinprendeville.com. That's K-E-V-I-N-P-R-E-N-D-I-V-I-L-L-E.com. Or, of course, look me up on Facebook, LinkedIn, or wherever you may get your media. This has been the Connecting the Dots podcast on the subject of the Seven Years' War.